0: Tea for today, for the portion of Yisro, but before we do the portion of Yisro, I want to speak a few minutes. Tomorrow, tonight is the 21st day of Shvat, and tomorrow, the 22nd day of Shvat, is the Yartzeit of the Rebbezman of the Rebbezman Chaya Mushka. Now we all know the name Chaya Mushka. I mean, there, are, in a certain class, when the teacher says. Chaimushka, stand up so the whole class gets up because they're all named Chayamushka. So uh, Chayamushka is the name, of course, of the Rebitson. And um, you know, one of the things about the Rebitson was that while she was the the wife of a great, famous and uh, leader who had tremendous amount of impact on the world on the Chabad and the whole uh, entire Jewish community. And yet, she kept an unbelievable low profile in the sense that uh, we know very little about her. And we know very little about her life. And in a way, that represents her greatness, that while she was uh, up there with the greatest leader of our time, and yet, she was totally inconspicuous. Now, we all know that the Rebbe and the Rebetzin didn't have any children. And it was kind of uh, interesting. One time, uh, there was a little boy that came up to the Rebetzin. And he said to the Rebetzin, was the Rebetzin's house or it was out there by the front? And he said, where's your children? He said to her. And she said, well, all the Hasidim are are the Rebbe's children, basically. But uh, these are one of the mysteries, I guess, that people wonder um, why Hashem made it in such a way. But we don't know the ways of Hashem. But that means that we are with the Rebbe till the coming of Mashiach. There is no uh, physical children by the Rebbe, but like the... Robinson said, we are all the children of the the Rebbe. So, you know, the fact that she had no children, that means that she technically would need more uh, her husband because the partner that she had was the Rebbe. And yet, she gave all that up. Uh, The Rebbe was, uh, he taught by example, he demanded a lot from the Hasidim. He demanded a lot from the people that would listen to him. He instructed a lot. He gave a lot of guidance. But the Rebbe worked tirelessly all the time. And that meant as the Chabad community grew and as the outreach grew and as the Rebbe's time became more and more people were demanding more and more the Rebbe's time, and that meant that the Rebbitzin had to give up, or gave up a lot of that time. And yet, you know, we know to the Rebbe the time that the little time, in quantity, he made it a quality time, and he made it a a set time uh, that he would make sure uh, to spend that time uh, with, and even quantity wise, but to make it into a quality time. So, but this woman, the Rebbitzin. Uh, sacrificed a lot you know she sacrificed a lot for whom? for the uh, for the Hasidim so that the Rebbe could be there for the Hasidim and if she wouldn't have done it if she wouldn't have agreed to it then this would not take place so it was her consent it was her um, her her wishes and we know that uh, when the Rebbe uh, had, we had the issue in Chabad with the court case about this firm, about the books. And the basically the question for the uh, judge was, the court was, were these personal belongings? And uh, that would mean, if it belonged to the previous Rebbe, uh, personally that would mean that uh, the family, other family members are entitled to a share of it or is it uh, the belongings that belongs to the organization, belongs to Chabad then it doesn't belong to anybody personally, it belongs to the organization and they asked the, uh, the Rebetzin Mushka. they asked her uh, they deposed her and then they asked her this question, in your opinion who did the uh, Sepharim, who do they belong to did they belong to the Hasidim, or they belong to your father, uh, you know the meaning. Belong to the movement, or they belong belong to personal. And she said, "Well, the Rebbe and uh, uh, the Rebbe himself belonged to the Hasidim. So it's not only a question who the book belongs to. The books belong. The Rebbe himself didn't have a separate entity. So it's not a question." Belonging to the Rebbe or to the Hasidim. Belonged to the Rebbe. But you see this, this was really the Rebbe. She felt that the Rebbe, her husband, and by extension herself, belonged to the Hasidim. And um, went through a very, you know, when you think about it, went through a very difficult life. First, uh, she grew up and as a young girl, as a teenager, it was the time of Stalin over there. And I mean, when she got a little bit older... And the communists and the family had to move from the city of Lubavitch. They moved to Rostov. And then eventually when World War One came around, they uh, fled to Leningrad from Rostov as the uh, marching uh, the Germans were coming all closer and closer. And, uh, and then in uh, Leningrad itself, the Rebbe's life was really made very difficult uh, by the communists. And um, as it is told, is the Rebbe was engaged to the, uh, the Rebetzin. And at that point, uh, when they came to visit and arrest the previous Rebbe, uh, the Rebbe, her husband, uh, the uh, room was about to enter, and, and she screamed through the window. She saw him coming, and she said to the window, we have guests over here. And, you know, guests meant uh, not uh, people that they invited or that they wanted to have them at their home. So they had to have guests over here. And, um, and, and the Rebbe was able to quickly go to the previous Rebbe's secretary to destroy some of the documentations, which were uh, sort of not so kosher as far as the government concerns over there. Was lists of the yeshivas, of the donations, and the different things, and basically that saved uh, the Rebbe a lot. And you know, eventually, they left. Uh, they left Russia, and it, uh, they were engaged then. But it took a couple of years. Uh, the wedding took place in Warsaw um, in 1929, and um, and then there's the. Uh, you know, after that, the troubles didn't uh, didn't stop because uh, the Rebbe, you know, in nineteen nineteen thirty nine, the uh, the Germans, you know, they attacked and um, and uh, Poland and the Rebbe uh, this blitzkrieg at that time and uh, and the Rebbe narrowly uh, the previous Rebbe narrowly escaped uh, through at that time America was still neutral. Uh, the Rebbe escaped, uh, the previous Rebbe, with the uh, Hasidim they escaped, uh, it's a whole other story, to the United States. But the Rebbe was actually studying in the university in Berlin. So the Rebbe got stuck over there, and when things got really uh, difficult, uh, they moved to France, and... uh, And then eventually, the Germans, uh, you know, the Vichy regime, they took over a portion of France as well. And uh, so people ran south in France itself. And uh, again, the previous Rebbe worked very hard to bring his family out of there. And um, uh, miraculously, uh, the Rebbe and the Rebitson came on the 28th day of uh, Sivan, they came to the United States. In uh, 1941, and uh, and once he came to the United States, shortly thereafter, the Rebbe uh, became the right hand uh, person of his uh, father-in-law, and then eventually, uh, you know, the Rebbe became the Rebbe. So that was a lot of a lot of uh, um, a lot of. Uh, Challenges in their lives, a lot of challenges, and uh, I just, you know, find it uh, very, um, very interesting that uh, it just a short story when they were uh, running away from the Germans, they were running away. This was already in France. Uh, there was a, a devastating bombardment, and uh, uh, she noticed the Rebbitzin that there was a uh, annex exploding shell that was heading towards a man that was standing next to her and she pushed him out of the way and she saved that uh, uh, person's life and she pushed him out, she saved his life but she uh, characteristically of her she says she says, true she says, I saved his life but pushing a Jew you have to do teshuva for for pushing a Jew. You know, here she went and she saved uh, that person's life. And yet she felt that uh, still you pushed another Jew, so you have to do teshuva. So, I mean, it was an incredible, incredible... I, I know people are trying to find more and more stories about her because it's of interest to people to know, learn about her life, learn from her. But I think the greatest and the most important thing that we learn from her is the fact that she can remain so obscure, remain in in, in away from the limelight to such an extent, you know, that uh, and be so devoted and dedicated to the Rebbe and uh, totally devoted to the Rebbe and to the Hasidim and to and to Yiddishkeit. And thanks, basically, <laughs> to her, she was able to. Uh, to accomplish this is this is very uh, very unique and very special. So may her memory uh, be for a blessing. May she be an inspiration for all of us to emulate her ways and try to uh, you know do things for Hashem, for the Torah, for Yiddishkeit, for uh, Klal Yisrael, for all the Jewish people to bring the world to a. Uh, holier and a better place so we remember again her yortseid is tomorrow tonight is already the 21st of shvat her yortseid is the 22nd day of shvat and she was always the right hand of her father and even in the most difficult times when the previous Rebbe was sent to exile to um uh to to Kastrama. she went along with the uh with the, with her father uh, she went along uh uh, Chaya Mushka, she went along with her and uh, actually they found recently a document in which the uh, Rebbe made her equivalent to what we know now as a uh, power of attorney uh, for her It was it's not called a power of attorney but the document basically states that she's authorized to accept a deal, monies from the from the guy, everything that she's uh, in his stead and place so she had a big role, so There's a lot, a lot of stuff with her that, you know, that is trickling out. But I think the greatest and the most important thing is the fact that, you know, you can do so much and not want any recognition and not even want to be seen. You know, today, you know, we find a lot of times it works the reverse. People do a little bit and they want a whole lot of uh, pat on the back. They want uh, everybody should... uh, applaud them even if they don't do so much you know like the Mishnah says and more say say a little speak a little bit and do a lot more and today sometimes it's I say you know do a little bit and just talk a lot about about what you done. but that's not the uh, that's not the Torah way that's not the 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 uh, the holy way. The holy way is to do things for Hashem. Now, of course, we need to recognize people who do good things and that encourages other people to do. That's not, that's, that's out of the question. So I think just to learn from the rabbits and in that way, that's very profound. Are you going to say something? Yes. Uh, when. That the living should put to his heart, which means those of us who are left behind need to take the heart from the life, and from the legacy, and from the inspiration, and we take it to our heart. The Rebbe sometimes says, V'achai, the living, means Hashem. Hashem puts it to his heart, in other words, Hashem sort of recognizes it. All right, let's move on to the Parsha. And again, as usual, uh, we cover two parts of the Parsha. I'm not sure uh, the time allowance today, but we'll do what we can. Uh a little bit of both. We'll touch on a little bit of both of the portions. Okay. Of course, today is the portion of Yisro. And let's read uh, the very beginning of what the portion starts with, with Yisro. Uh, The verse says, uh, okay, so the question that I present over here is, what exactly did Yisro hear that made him come? We read about Yisro. We know was the father-in-law of Moshe. Moshe Rabenu married Yisro's daughter. Her name was Tzipora. Okay. Her name was Tzipora. So Tzipora was the daughter of Yisro, and we read before the whole story how Moshe Rabenu met them at the well, and uh, Yisro told him to come home. And he married, the, uh, he married his daughter. He married one of the daughters. He married uh, Tsipporah. So in this verse it says, Vayishma Yisro, Yisro heard. Now the Torah describes Yisro. Who is Yisro? The Torah describes him as the Kohain Midian. What is the meaning of Kohain Midian? Kohen Midyon. What is a Kohen? Kohen means a priest, right? That's what it means. So uh, according to uh, one interpretation, and will means that he was actually a priest and he served the idols over there, whatever they did over there. Now, mind you, I just wanted to, this will come in handy a little bit later on, the people that served as priests in those days uh, they were great intellectuals and they had uh, they had a good understanding in various different spiritual and uh, and godly matters to the extent that people knew in those days. And a lot of times the mistake that the people made was to attribute uh, holiness to things which were given power by Hashem and they attributed powers to things that don't really have independent power. Say, for example, just to demonstrate this, um, if a person who is a a carpenter builds a, a beautiful bookcase and then somebody will say, wow, that tool, that hammer that you used, look what a beautiful bookcase that hammer created. That would be foolish, right? Because the hammer can't do anything by on its own. The hammer is used by the uh, person, by the uh, carpenter to build. So a tool is merely a tool. So if God created, for example the sun. Now the sun provides heat, the sun provides light the sun helps things grow so those are all things that are very important. So some of the ideas of the Kohen Midian and as well as the other priest was that if Hashem has given such power and we use the sun and the moon and the various stars to Help us with our daily lives, that means that Hashem wants us to praise them. So they attributed strength to some of these forces that benefit us. But the truth of the matter is that they are merely like the hammer in the hands of the carpenter who uses the hammers, the tools in order to create something. The sun, the moon, everything that gives us what we need don't have any independence. They are just used by Hashem to help the world run the way Hashem wants it run. So it doesn't really matter to, uh, it doesn't really fit to give them, to praise them and say to them, oh, you need to be praised or we, are so appreciative, uh, you know, that's, what are you appreciating? So, the, um, um, you know, the father puts in uh, the money into the bank and the son goes to the bank and tries to collect from the, sometimes they want, he wants to collect, oh, he says to the teller, Thank you so much for giving me the money thank you and the teller says, what are you thanking me for giving your father put the money in the account for you <laughs> the teller is just you know I'm just giving I'm not giving you my money I'm giving you the money that your father put in for you so go ahead and thank your dad for putting in the money into the account I'm not doing anything I'm just I'm just handing you the money that Hashem, that your father put here The sun isn't doing anything for us. The sun is merely giving us what Hashem is giving us through the sun. So when we talk about a Kohen Midian, a priest of Midian, he was a very distinguished intellectual, but it was, uh, the conclusion was wrong. So some of the ideas had an understanding and knew about astrology, knew about all the spheres, knew about all the cosmos, knew about lo- life on other planets or not. He knew a lot of, he was a brilliant man. He was a Kohen Mija. That means a priest of Midian. He was a brilliant man. So that's in one interpretation. The other interpretation means a Kohen, not in the uh, not a, a man of the cloth, not a spiritual but rather a leader. Cohen could also mean a leader. He was a asar. He was an officer. He was a governor. He was a distinguished person in that sense. What are these two ideas? One is intellectual. that He was great in his intellectual level. And the other ones, they... He was also a leadership role. He was uh, a leader who uh, ruled and may, had, was involved with the actions of the people. So he was great both in philosophy and he was great also. This is the two interpretation of the Kohen Midyam. So what does it say? So this Yisro, who was the Kohen of Midyam, he was Hossein Moshe. he was Moshe's father-in-law. So he heard what did he hear? He heard as Asher oso elekim moshe Israel. everything that God has done for Moshe and Israel. This comes right now after the great miracles. a lot of miracles took place. We know the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians and then God just has taken them out of Egypt. He gave them the plague, 10 plagues, and then the splitting of the sea and then there was a war with Amalek. There was a lot of miracles going on there. So the verse says he heard everything that Hashem has done to motion Israel, His nation. And then the verse says specifically, it says Hashem es Yisrael Yisrael, that God has taken the Jewish people out of Egypt. So, if somebody was to ask you, what did Yisro hear that prompted Yisro to come? What did he hear? So it says, he heard that God has taken the Jews out of Egypt. That's what he heard, right? So what did Yisro hear that he came? It almost seems like he heard that God has taken the Jews out of Egypt, but furthermore, it says he heard everything that Hashem has done for Moshe and Israel. So it's quite clear that he heard everything, And generally speaking, as Rashi points out, this was the greatest that he took out the Jews of Egypt. That's like an impossible thing. Not even one slave could run away from Egypt. And now you have a whole nation leaving Egypt. So that's, that's what he heard. But it's interesting that Rashi quotes over here And Rashi, who usually tells us the simple meaning, Rashi says, what did he hear that he came? Rashi says. So Rashi says two things specific. He heard this splitting of the sea. And he heard about the war with Amalek. The Jewish people experienced two things recently, which was the splitting of the sea. That happened when the Egyptians were chasing them and they changed their mind. So Hashem split the sea for them. And then later on, Amalek came and waged war with them. So that's what he heard, Rashi says. So the simple question is, we just the, the verse just told you what he heard. The verse actually says he heard that Hashem took them out of Egypt. That's what it says. Not about splitting of the sea and not about the war of Amalek. And uh, the verse before says everything that God did for Moshe and Israel. So why does Rashi say, what did he hear? I mean, we know what he heard. It says in the passage what he heard. And the Rebbe has an interesting explanation over here. Uh, the Rebbe says that there's two things. There's something that Yisro heard that prompted him to leave Kohain Midian, to leave his whole life and convert and join the faith of the Jewish people. That's really what the verse is talking about. So when the verse talks about what did he hear that made him want to convert and made him want to join the Jewish people, that was the general idea that the Jews were taken out of Egypt that showed the greatness of miracles that Hashem did for them. But Rashi wants to know more than that is, but what specifically did he hear that made him come? Which means Yisro technically could have converted and remained in Midyjah if he heard the miracles, if he was impressed by the uh, miracles that he heard that Hashem took them out of Egypt... And he recognized the greatness of Hashem. He didn't have to come and join them to the Midbar. The Midbar was a desolate place. There was nothing there. There was a uh, uh, a place where the Jews wandered for the forty years there. But you know, at that point, why would somebody want to come from? the honors, and a city, and a comfort, and a convenience where he was live, living, and why did he want to come to the uh, to the desert? So, Rashi's question is not, what did he hear that convinced him to convert? That's the passage tells us, that he took them out of Egypt, that he, he recognized that Hashem is great. But what specifically did he hear that made him come? And Rashi says that it was the splitting of the sea, specifically, and the war with Amalek. And so, before uh, we explain that uh, exactly, let's see another another question we have. Maybe piling up the questions is going to sort of distract us a little bit, but it's just another interesting question that the Rebbe raises over here. Now, the question is, how many names did Yisro have? So Rashi quotes here that he had seven names. Uh, And two of the seven names, Rashi says all the names, he has seven different names. Why all these names? Apparently, people would be given a name based on something that they did. So, we're going to concentrate on two of the names. Now, you know, one of his names was Yeser, and the other name was Yisro. What's the difference between Yeser and Yisro? Above? Yeser is without of. Yisro is with of. What does yeser mean? Extra. What does it mean? Why was he called extra? Why was Yitro called yeser? Why was he called extra? So that has to do, Rashi explains. Because it was thanks to Yisro, and this piece is going to come in handy for the next part that I want to talk about, because what happened when he did come to the desert, okay, so what happened, so when Yisro came to the desert, he said to Moshe Rabbeinu, how come you are the one that is... Sitting and doing all the judgment all by yourself. Why are you the only one answering all the questions? You're the only one that is dealing with all the problems. He says, You won't be able to handle it. You can't do it alone. You're going to be tired. You're going to tire. The people are going to tire. The long lines, they're going to have to wait. To get to you, and you won't be able to handle it all by yourself. And he advises Moshe, "Why don't you find people of stature who have good character traits, honesty, people you can rely on?" He gives him. By the way, there is, a, you know, he counts like all these people over there. Um uh, some of the uh qualifications that he mentions are there people um uh, that don't like money, they don't like they're not running after money, they're not those are all the people that you should find. So somebody asked the question, all these qualifications Where are you gonna find uh, judges like that? I mean, how how are you gonna find people to meet these criterias that your requirement? So he says, "Listen, if the price is right, you're gonna find that. (laughs) You're gonna find. You'll find people that don't like money also for the right price." (laughs) But in any event, so this whole communication between Moshe Rabbeinu and his father-in-law, and then. Uh, Moshe goes with, uh, with Yisro with his father-in-law, and then Moshe goes and asks Hashem. Hashem agrees to Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, to Yisro, and he appoints that this has all been added to the Torah. It looks like if Yisro did not come up with this idea, if Yisro did not suggest it, the Torah would have had one section less to it the way it was meant to be. You know, there are other parts of the Torah that we find that they were re- revealed through other people. In other words, other people had the privilege to teach us those laws of the Torah, like by the doors of Tslavchad, other places. But in this case, it seems that he brought in an extra portion of the Torah. That's why we call him Yeter, Yetter means extra. He brought in more. He brought in an additional portion for the Torah. So that's the reason why we call him Yeser. So why do we call him Yisro?
1: Because when he converted,
0: we added another letter to his name. So instead of being Yeser, it became Yitro. So the Rebbe asks in this question, but in this Parsha, it says, V'yishma Yisroi, he heard, and he's he's just coming right now, so how come we're calling him Yisro over here? And this Parsha over here, he hasn't converted yet, because he's coming to them to the desert, and then he converts. So why would we call him Yisro over here? So these two ideas that we spoke about before, about Yisro, the Kohen, by in one place being this big intellectual who reached a great level in wisdom. And at the same time, he was always a very pragmatic and a leader who brought it into action. Which also, we find these are the two things. Now, instead of Yisro, doing these things in the other side, which means serving the, being a priest and being a governing action. On the other side, he swapped it around because this is the idea of the Torah is to, first of all, to reach to the highest level in the intellect, to go the wisdom of Torah to come to a very, very high level and it's also the Torah to bring it down in practical terms, to both, to reach into the greatest levels of wisdom so we study, but also to take all the wisdom and bring it down into action. And those are the two ideas of a Kohen that was mentioned here, being in wisdom and also Uh, bringing it down into action, which is basically the Torah and the mitzvot, or in Torah, to reach to a higher level. Rebbe brings down, and this was all in preparation for Matan Torah. So even though Yisro didn't convert yet, but the two ideas, adding to Torah, which is wisdom, and doing mitzvahs, those were the preparation from Yisro and afterwards the Torah was given. That brings in an interesting, very interesting concept. You know that a person, when you're standing straight, where are your hands? Your hands are on your side. That's what a person is. Uh, by the measure of the height of a person, not sure exactly what it comes out, whether we take it as six feet, or five and a half feet, whatever it comes out to. But the measure of a person is three and a half amas. Amah is a uh, is six hand breadth, but the actual measurement is not important. But we say the height of a average height of a person is three amas. That's in the Talmud. Okay. Now, we say that a person, every person has a space that. His space, you know, like they tell you sometimes today don't go into the other person's space, don't get too close to the other person, leave the person. What is the space? What is the Torah definition of the space of the person? So, the Torah's definition of the space of the person is three, is actually four amis. So, three amis is the height of the person. So, we're saying the person's height. That's his space. So don't go into within the circumference of three amas of the person. That's the space of the person. Plus one amas. So really, four amas is the space of the person. The person captures four amas. So the reason why it's three, we know. Why? Because that's the height of the person. So if you laid him flat, he would be taking up Three amas, so standing up, he still has those. That's my space, three amas. But why four? Four, the Gemara says, is because when you reach your hand upwards, there's another arm over there. So, because sometimes we raise our hands upwards. That's why there's an extra armor. The question is, just because I raise my hands sometimes up, why do I get that extra armor? When I'm down, I don't, have to, I don't get the extra armor. Why do I have to get the extra armor just because sometimes I raise it up? Why are you giving me four? How come we're saying that the size of the person is really four because he raises his hands why don't we measure him when his hands is down? And the answer is because a person is always supposed to raise his hands upwards, which means the goal of the person when your hands regularly then you are only reaching to nature where you are created. I'm created in a way that my hands go down. They're next to my side. That's the way of my that's the way I'm created. When you pick your hands upwards, then you're showing that you must strive to go higher. You're going above. You're not staying where you are. You're going in a higher level. And what does it mean when we say, but here we're not saying, you know, put your head upwards, raise something else. What gets you to the higher place? Your hands. Hands represent action. So actually, what we're seeing over here is two things in both directions. Your actions can actually raise you to a higher spiritual level. So the level that you are created isn't where you remain. You go higher, your hands go upwards. So that means your actions can actually raise you higher. And on the other hand, it means... That if you go higher, it must interpret itself in your hands, and actions. If you just go higher and it has no manifestation, it doesn't translate into action, then you haven't really gone higher. But basically, is through action you can reach higher? And when do we know that your ideas are meaningful? When they are traded, when you're higher, when they're translated into action. These are actually the two things that we say by Yisro, the Torah and his actions. Yisro was accomplished in both wisdom and action, as we mentioned. His flipping to Torah and mitzvahs represents the transformation from the other side to Torah. And this, the Zohar says that it was necessary for Yisrael to first come and then the Torah was given. He came because he sort of brought about this whole idea the Torah was given to make us go higher and to bring everything into action. He was a priest and an officer. Then he fl- flips the to Torah Mitzvah. And so we call him Yisro, even though he didn't actually, but his whole idea was that he came and it turned around, and the Rebbe explains that specifically it was the splitting of the uh, of the sea, uh, which represents the level of wisdom breaking through all the openings and the war with Amalek, how it represents. But I'm going to leave that. I know that we opened up with that question because I do want to leave a few minutes for the second part because we're almost out of time. And I do want to leave a few minutes for that. So the, the other point that we uh, need to discuss today is the second uh, aspect of it that we touched on before, and um, and that was the question we brought down before that he said that he was going to not be able Moshe Rabinu to handle it all by himself, right? Who told him that? Yes. The yes, question is: what was Moshe thinking? How, how did Moshe think? That he's going to handle it. One person is going to handle everything by himself. Didn't he? Uh, didn't he realize that it's a uh, something that he won't be able to do? And the answer is that Moshe Rabbeinu thought that if Hashem wants him to do that, there is nothing that he can't do. Moshe Rabbeinu and his evaluation, estimation, he realized that he is the one who heard the Torah from Hashem. And he realized that he would be the best teacher to the Bnei Yisrael, to the Jewish people. Because it's not the same to hear it directly from the teacher or to hear it from a second hand, so Moshe Rabbeinu was sure if he is the one that heard it, and if Hashem wants him to do it, he could do it. That was Moshe Rabbeinu in his evaluation. There's a very interesting, similar thing. So what we see here is like this: Moshe Rabbeinu judged the people by his level. It's not like that he didn't understand. He understood quite well. Moshe Rabbeinu believed that when he teaches the people, he can raise them to his level. He can raise the people that listen to him to pick them up so that they should be at the same level as Moshe Rabbeinu. And actually, Moshe Rabbeinu could do that. Moshe Rabbeinu, being the one who heard it from Hashem, when he gives it over, he felt we can bring them up to the level of the Bnei, of, of, of Moshe Rabbeinu. And just like Moshe Rabbeinu heard it from Hashem, he can give it over to them. There's another instance, not sure if I want to go through, uh, there's another interesting intra- instance when there's a, uh, a similar situation which Moshe Rabbeinu evaluated also. Uh, when Hashem gave the Ten Commandments, originally Hashem was going to have all the people hear it, all the Ten Commandments from Hashem. But then the people said, no, 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 we can't hear it from Hashem. You listen to Hashem and then you pass it along to us. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, Why, don't you want to listen? Don't you want to listen directly from Hashem? Isn't listening from Hashem much more, much more valuable than listening from me? Why are you missing the opportunity to listen to Hashem? So, Moshe Rabbeinu believed, again, that he could teach the, play, the Jewish people Moshe lifts up the Bnei Yisrael to his level and he believed that they can, in his presence, they can be living, living up to him. But Yisrael was arguing to Moshe two things basically. When you're talking about teaching Torah, you can raise them to your level. You can teach them Torah. And you can be the only teachers. But when they quarrel with each other, because they need to come to Moshe when they have, as the Pasik says, they have a, a, a judgment, they have a, a disagreement, they have a fight, so they have to come to the judge. At that point, they argued, Moshe can't lift them up. You can't bring them up to your level. But further, Moshe Rabbeinu thought, That when they came in his presence, maybe they won't fight. Just in his presence, coming, if Moshe is the judge, maybe he won't even need to go through the whole case. Maybe it'll be resolved just by coming to Moshe Rabbeinu. He'll lift him up. But the Rebbe basically says, Yisro argued, what are we going to do when you are not there to lift us up? Basically, he says, when there is quarrels, when Moshe Rabbeinu is not there to lift us up, we need to have other people involved so that we can go on. So Moshe Rabbeinu, from his perspective, he took care of the Jewish people. He wasn't going to worry about what's going to what's gonna happen after his passing. That's not with the leader. The leader worries about the here and now for, his, for the Jewish people. But Yisroi, and we see that Hashem agreed, but Hashem only agreed that Moshe Rabbeinu should institute this. So it was Moshe Rabbeinu's job to institute this, to see to it that the teaching of Moshe Rabbeinu, even in the absence of Moshe Rabbeinu, even in the situation when the Jewish people quarrel with each other, even in difficult situations, there must be that continuous connection to the Torah. So while Moshe Rabbeinu wants to bring them higher, Hashem says that they actually need to, to be able to relate to the uh, other people, to the judges, to the other people that are there. And, you know, in a similar way, you know, we find ourselves now without our Moshe Rabbeinu from our generation, talking about the Yort side of the Rebbitson and then we talk about uh, the Rebbe, and we talk about our oh, Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, of course, we want to hear, and when we heard from Moshe Rabbeinu, when we would stand at a Fabringen, that's a Hasidic gathering with the Rebbe, it wasn't just the teaching that the Rebbe taught us. That's like teaching through a second hand, you know, like having the judge, that it's not just the teaching. Teaching the Torah, the actual, you can listen to a talk by the Rebbe, you can watch a video. But being in the presence of Moshe Rabbeinu, being in the presence of the Rebbe, that uplifting spirit, that being there, being involved, feeling that holiness, that lifted you up. It wasn't, you didn't just hear words of Torah that you took with your mind, that your mind grasped, but your neshama, your whole soul, your whole being was there. You connected. The Rebbe lifted you up and and the Rebbe from his perspective wanted to be there all the time to lift us up so that we can be there and be uplifted. But Hashem says sometimes you have to make do until the time that you can actually be uplifted again with Moshe Rabbeinu and with all the Rebbes, with all the tzaddikim, until in Mr. with the coming of Mashiach Tzidkeinu. we got to continue to learn and we got to continue to study, do the best we can. Even though we miss out, we miss we miss the Rebbe, we miss the Rebetzin. And we hope that Hashem will send us Mashiach and, be and we'll be together with all of our loved ones, with all the tzaddikim and all the holy people we hope that this happens very soon and speedily in our day